0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Today on the Rise Together podcast, we are going to have a frank conversation about parenting, children, and addiction. Today, my guest is Susan Burrows, who is a presenter, teacher, trainer, and project manager who holds a master's degree in communication and also is the parent of two extraordinary and at times challenging children. She's an award-winning author whose day jobs span 15 years in advertising, 8 years teaching in a college classroom, and another 10 training professionals and organizations on how to communicate with each other, an irony that was not lost on her as she struggled to reach her addicted daughter. She currently works with a team of high-achieving young adults in admissions at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she often is questioning teen success and how to produce it on a daily basis. She's written an amazing book that we're going to talk about. We're going to dive into all the things. She writes about the strength and determination of troubled teens, of special needs children, and specifically about her own journey through addiction and a relationship that grew and changed over time with her daughter, who was herself an addict. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Susan Burroughs to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast. It's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise. Together. Susan, to start things off, I'm hoping that you, in your own words, could introduce yourself to our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work.
2: Well, I am a writer, but first and foremost, I'm a mom, and uh, that's why I wrote this particular book. And this book represents the experience that my family had moving through the addiction of our teen. It was a a difficult two years of uh, our family life. I'm hoping that it will help people to see inside what happens to a family, the downward spiral that happens when your teen becomes addicted to drugs. I'm hoping that they'll be able to make better decisions about how to respond to uh, that addiction as well. I consider the story, this might sound a bit odd, I consider the story to be a love story and a love story about uh, mostly a mother and daughter. Uh, it is a dual narrative, so you will hear both of our voices uh, trying to find each other uh, through this fog of uh, drugs and high-risk behaviors.
0: What I I love about the show that we're doing and the intention behind it is this hope that we can create a bridge of empathy between anyone who is listening and the experience of someone who is a guest on the show and there is it's a hard thing to talk about there is like some taboo almost around it and and there are things that make it more difficult I think for us to be honest about addiction generally, and the way that we as parents maybe feel about processing things that are happening, certainly to our children, I'm going to assume that part of this was just a, a want for helping other people. But also, how do you push past? How do you like, reconcile the, the way that people may Judge the way that people think about addiction, the way that there is, you know, the thing that inevitably kind of like sticks around addiction. It, I, I'm so happy that we're going to have this conversation because I just want to totally dismantle anything that anyone might feel because there's disease here, there's, you know, normalness here, and I want to make maybe more normal the process of having to deal with something that's hard like this. How was it for you?
2: Well, obviously it was difficult, and there's a lot of guilt for parents, I think. Our family is no exception. You're always looking at what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? Should I have said no here or yes here? But it's no use second guessing yourself. You are where you are. I decided to go ahead and bear all. And believe me, the book bears all. Yes, good and bad and and beautiful and ugly. When the programs asked me if I would be willing to speak to some of the parents who were considering going through the process, and those parents had the same questions over and over and over again. And I realized that there was a dearth of material to answer those questions. And that's really where the book began. Um, My research showed me that 85% of people in our country know somebody, is related to somebody, is the parent of somebody, or have friends that have a child who is addicted. It's a raging problem, and uh, hiding it isn't going to help it.
0: Yeah, there's, there's something to the willingness to listen to the things that are consistently coming up to give you the breadcrumbs for where your service, your gifts, your bringing light into this world may afford itself. And if there's anything in any of the tools that we've created here, it's just been listening to an audience tell us over and over, here are the things. And you, I think it sounds like have done the same thing and listening to what are the things that just keep coming up inside of people who are processing the tragedy that is working through addiction. Uh, Which, by the way, for any listener, whatever work you're doing, whatever world you live inside of, listen to the things that keep coming up. That is the audience telling you where they need your light, where they need your work. I'm curious, Susan, when did you in this journey know that there was something going on in Hannah's personal life for the first time? What was what were the earliest signs that, oh, wow, there might be something here?
2: You raise a really interesting question because a lot of the behaviors that point towards addiction in a family are the same behaviors that teens normally exhibit. So it's just taken to the extreme. So changes in appearance, uh, change in peer group, uh, both things that happen very frequently when a child, for example, starts high school. So it's very hard to differentiate Changes in the family interactions that they have, uh, changes in their sleep schedule, drugs or empty alcohol cans and bottles obviously are a big red flag for us because they were related high risk behaviors. Um, for me, that, I think what tipped me over that edge, Dave, was was finding um, bloody bandages in the in the garbage can, and and then knew that this had just gotten way out of our control and that curfews and punishments and therapists weren't going to be able to help anymore.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I have 13, 11, 8, and 3. So my kids are just now getting close to, I know I have a thousand <laughs> kids, but I, but I have kids that are just now getting into that teenage space where they're also processing all the things that inevitably they will have to process. And I know preparing them to make the right decisions as an adult and preparing them to live independently is a big part of what I'm already thinking of. I'm curious with the perspective that you have and what you've been through. How do we as parents balance that responsibility of wanting to prepare them well, knowing when the right time to intervene on behaviors may be or allowing them some autonomy to make mistakes and learn from them in a way that doesn't allow them to tip into the harmful behaviors or into something like addiction that all of a sudden then becomes a bigger problem that has to be handled?
2: Well, that's a, a wonderful question and a terrible question because it's different for every family. There's no one answer. Uh, it depends on where you live and who the peer group is and what the activities are that your young ones are, are interested in. I think that the, the scariest thing for me is that we, we know that no child wakes up one morning and says, I think I'll go be a drug addict. You know, it's not something that they do intentionally. And there's that fine line between, that a very fine line between experimenting and getting in trouble and reaching a point of addiction. So I think that that's, um, that's the line us parents have to suss out and try to figure out.
1: Selling a little or a lot.
2: so if you can start working with your child early on and you see maybe there are some changes going on that are confusing them or pushing them to experiment in ways that are not comfortable for you or the family, that there are early interventions that you can take. I, I'm hoping that we can put these facilities out of business. That would be ideal. There's 14,500 facilities in the United States that uh, help us with rehab. we could change that model a little bit and say it's not really the drugs that often push our children, but that need for the uh, brain chemicals, the rush, the excitement, which by the way becomes so much harder during a time of pandemic uh, to find those types of inner those types of interventions so um so yes, uh nobody. Nobody wants children to hit this point, uh, but the line is very fuzzy. Dave, I wish I, had,
0: yes. I wish I had a,
2: an an exact answer for you.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm like I'm playing uh, a game in my mind of how I want to try and preempt or engage in conversation or be a supportive investigator of the things that are happening in my kids' lives in a way that doesn't have them feeling like I'm being overbearing, but also has me just close enough and connected enough to the experience of their experience that I might stay a little bit closer to signs at the beginning rather than signs later on in the process, but I'm not sure how that works. I think it's just, like you say, it's going to be a little bit different and a little more uh, an intuitive thing for every individual family, given the individual circumstance of each of their kids.
2: I know, uh, I can suggest that, uh, that parents start right away finding alternative passions for their children. And we did allow our child to move from one passion to another as uh, their interest waned. And I think that that is, that's very helpful. It's actually the National Institute of Health calls it distraction. And that's one of the the best things that you could do because it's fun for the family. It's fun for your teens and it can prevent a lot of other exploration uh, that is not as healthy.
0: Now that's good. That's a great tip. So you said intervention. I know that you tried several different types of interventions and you finally made the decision to, as a family, send your daughter to a wilderness program first and then a residential treatment program Can you, for people who maybe are a little less familiar with what treatment looks like, give just a little bit of an idea of what these programs are like for teens and how you came to the decisions that you did for your daughter?
2: Uh, Programs are traumatic, and they are hard, and they will have a lasting effect on your child and your family. So the first thing to do is to try to avoid these programs we finally selected programs uh, through a consultant because we were afraid our daughter was going to hurt herself, kill herself, be gone from our lives forever. It's a very extreme situation. However, she did share with us that there were many, many teens in the program that shouldn't have been there. So I just want to ask everybody to make sure before you take this, this step, that it's a necessary step. When a teen goes to wilderness, they are typically escorted. They are typically, I live in California. The programs here uh, will allow a teen to leave on their own recognizance at age 15. Our daughter was 16 and in pretty serious shape. So we decided that we would go to Utah and uh, to invest in a program there. Intake is very difficult. They strip them down. they give them what is essentially a cold weather uniform in this case. and they send them out into just an expanse of snow and ice and they have no tent, they have no ground cover. They sleep in a double um, bag in the snow. They ration their own food. Over the course of a week, they um, have to make their own fire if they want warm food. And uh, they have uh, community meetings, which are essentially therapy every day. And then once a week, they have therapy with a psychologist. And that typically, for most families, goes um, about eight or nine weeks. Our daughter, uh, unfortunately, was in the program for 13 weeks before she was deemed ready to move on. Uh, And then that's another decision point for families. Like, Oh, should we bring them home now? Uh, They've spent all this time in therapy. They must be better by now. But unfortunately, there's often an underlying issue that has to be dealt with in in a more traditional therapeutic setting. And so we did um, move our child to a residential treatment program which uh, in our case was also a high school, so that they could continue uh, to go to school while uh, working on their issues that drove them to addiction.
0: Wow. I mean, that's a lot. It's a lot. That is a lot.
3: (laughs) It's just a little piece. So.
0: No, I mean, hey, it's it's what was necessary given the circumstances that you found yourself in. And I'm sure as a parent, an impossibly hard decision, even if it was the right decision to take a leap into something that is as intense or extreme as what you've just described, but... That was what was necessary, given the circumstance that you found yourself in. I give you a lot of credit for having made a very, very difficult choice in a very, very difficult situation. I know that your story is going to be applicable to many families who have a person that is struggling with addiction. uh, But in your case, your daughter was using or misusing opioids. And I know that opioid addiction has become such a crisis in the last, handful of years, in part because it's easier, I'm going to argue, to start with prescription drugs. People maybe find it a little less frightening than quote-unquote street drugs. How do we talk to our kids about the unique dangers of misusing prescription drugs and opioids if the idea of them not being street drugs maybe doesn't scare them away or keep them away from trying something in the first place? Well,
2: the, the easy answer is by example, first of all, what are why are the drugs in your medicine cabinet? So, for us, it was certainly our our daughter experimented with opioids. She also used ecstasy a lot, <laughs> and um, she also was a misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder due to the use of opioids, which brought her down and mellowed her out and ecstasy, which made her manic. And uh, her uh, overdose, which, uh, you know, was seemed seems now looking back was inevitable, uh, was actually on lithium. It was on lithium that which was given to her for bipolar disorder, rapid cycling bipolar disorder, which she didn't have. (laughs) So there's another parent moment, you know, well, why didn't I get a third or a fourth opinion? And who do you trust? But in terms of talking to children, I'm I'm not a therapist. So um, this will also change family by family. And I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I can give anybody uh, advice that will apply to them. Uh, to us in our family, the best communication was trust building. And there's that dangerous line again of trusting while watching. So what is it they what is it uh, that they say in politics? Trust but verify
0: <laughs> so. no, it's good I, The thing is trust but verify is real <laughs> I, you know it's like I want to afford my humans the belief in their having the capacity to make the best decisions in their life, period, but also. I want to recognize their humanity and the influence of their friends and the Mm -hmm. curiosity of their being people who are going to inevitably be curious like any of us were. And yeah, I want to verify to make sure that they're actually making the right choices.
2: Uh, watching the activity go from, you know, we're going out for pizza to we're going out for pizza in a movie. We're going out pizza movie. And then we're going to hang out at XYZ's house and then coming home and smelling things and finding things. And, you know, you're in trouble. You better, you might want to start thinking about intervention at that point. If you don't have somebody uh, in, if you don't have a teen who can be honest with you at that point and tell you what it was that they were doing during that time.
0: Well, you've written this book. Uh, you do now work. And certainly we're having this conversation around the idea of taking some of the stigma that exists around substance abuse and trying to break it down, especially inside of the teen community, where obviously it is a serious thing that we have to try and break a stigma down against. What do you think we can do as a community to create a more compassionate approach to substance abuse disorders, especially with our teens?
2: A more compassionate approach uh, would be uh, called for. I know that in these harsher approaches and the ones, the approaches that we would like to avoid, as an end result, we only have two out of every five, I believe, uh, teens who are actually remaining sober. So clearly, we haven't found what it is that the, that's key to the health of our teens yet. There have been some experiments in other countries about having uh, intense after-school programs. And though I hate to put everything back on our schools, they're so overloaded right now, and especially during these times, it again has shown to be useful for teens to have this distraction early on in the process, to have a passion that they could follow and then if they do seem to be getting into some troublesome areas, some dangerous areas, to start finding support. And even during this time of COVID, uh, it, it is possible to find free support, online support. And I would like to uh, urge your listeners to think about reaching out to professionals who can help them in their own family situation and uh with an appropriate intervention for the stage uh, of, the, of your teen's uh, issues. So. Well, you,
0: yeah, so you just said family, and I know that you have uh, stressed that in order to overcome substance abuse, the entire family has to work together, not just the teen who is struggling. Can you describe a little bit of what a whole family approach looked like for you?
2: And uh, thank you for bringing that up, Dave. I I do think that that's incredibly important. And probably if there was uh, one thing that helped uh, us reach sobriety success at this point, it is the fact that everything that my daughter read, we read. Uh, We talked about every book, every article. She was involved in a therapy called uh, Dialectic Behavioral Therapy. Uh, we also took part in dialectic behavioral therapy as a family. We went uh, to pick her up and move her uh, to her second program, and we actually camped out with her uh, that night uh, in circumstances similar to what she was experiencing. So we just tried to we just tried to mimic her experience at every step of the way. And uh, at one point she had written us a letter letters every day uh, from her uh, and journal entries. So we had a, a very good connection during the time that she was in program. And she said that it had occurred to her that it wouldn't do any good if one person changed. And that she saw in her program, teens who had been essentially, and pardon the word, dumped into programs by parents who were just washing their hands of the problem. And uh, it was her observation that that's not useful. It's not supportive. And that if one person in a family changes, it makes no difference because it's the entire environment. And I will say that because of her and her observations and her hard work and her encouragement that we join her in the process, uh, we have a, we have better communication today uh, than we ever have. It's uh, it had a excellent outcome in that area. And for us, if the programs did one thing for us, it wasn't necessarily all of the therapy that she received, but it was opening the channel of communication between the family and the team. So it just, it creates this place, this calm place where you can have moderated conversations.
3: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
0: I'm interested in the relationship that you have with your daughter now. Well, I'm interested in like a whole host of things in all of this, but... <laughs> <laughs> you, you decided, I mean, you decided to write a book, Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction, right? You, at the top of this episode, mentioned that you felt it, a love story between you and your daughter, which I love. And the idea that each of you take turns sharing your voice in the journey is such an interesting way to tell the story. But I'm, I'm really curious what was the process of writing about something that was obviously very, very difficult for you to go through like, and how in having written it, has it changed the way that you are able to connect? I mean, you just said that you guys are closer, but I'm um, I'm interested really in how, like how was it to actually try and write about something that was so, so difficult to go through?
2: Uh, still difficult to talk about. <laughs> I had my daughter's permission before I started writing. and. I relied on our writings uh, over the course of the two years uh, that she was away, that we sent her away. So I had the, I essentially had the book written uh, by the time she came out of the program. I decided to find an editor uh, to clean up what I thought was a finished book, and I went and uh, stalked the editor <laughs> if I wanted And when I finally got the book back, it looked like a porcupine. There were just so many sticky notes sticking out of it. The editor put the book down and said to me, so I understand you want to make this into a book. (laughs) I spent the next years um, just trying to craft it in a way that would be more effective and more truly representative of the story the emotions, the family involvement, the involvement of the two primary characters uh, in a way that was honest. I did start writing with my daughter. And after a very short time, she said, you know what, this isn't for me. She says I I give you permission. <laughs> she actually said to me, I think you need the catharsis. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I will I'll go ahead and write it then. She, if you she wanted to look Forward. She had a lot going on in her life. She was about to go to university and she was moving out of home after a brief summer at home after the program. So, she said, you know, you go ahead. I trust you on this project. Over the years of the writing and the rewriting and rewriting, she became a little less um, so... Just right before the book was published, the ARCs, the reader's copies were were already out. The book was already with a publisher, obviously. And uh, she said, you know, I'm not so sure because I I don't think these programs are right for everybody. And I'm afraid that we are glorifying a program uh, that may not be right for everybody. So it was a really thoughtful complaint. And so the book uh, received another late rewrite to make it information neutral. Uh, we're trying to show what happened to us without making a judgment uh, about the programs and whether they're right for other people or not. So this was a long process. And you asked me, you asked me, you know, how how did we find ourselves closer now, essentially? And I think that was probably it is respecting her feelings and her wishes and uh, my story as well, and the story of parents and parents who need to hear uh, that they're not alone out there, that there is hope, that it can be done. There had to be some sort of compromise between that. And I trusted her and she trusted me. And uh, that's why I think we have a a much better relationship now. She tells me things I don't even want to hear anymore.
0: (laughs) So it's like, stop. That's beautiful though. I love that. I mean, you've been put through the fire and you've been forged into something whole and different and new. And there's beauty in that. I I love the idea of like trust being at the foundation of all of it. So that's fantastic. All right, Susan, I'm going to ask you uh, a final question that I ask all humans who come onto the show, which is... If there were a single thing that you could give this audience a takeaway that they could actionably implement into their life today, what single thing would you suggest that people who are listening right now should do to afford themselves more peace, to set their lives up better for success, to love better on their humans? One single thing.
2: Embrace the moment, whether it's good or bad. um, You can you can't wish moments away. And so if you have the opportunity to have a great moment, that's wonderful. If you unfortunately find yourself in a difficult moment, then work together with uh, all of the people around you to travel through it and to the other side.
0: I'm here for it. I've been on a kick of the gift of 2020 for sure has been the total dismantling of the illusion of control that we, I think maybe you have previously believed ourselves to have access to and now that we know it doesn't exist can't change anything that's happened even worrying about what happens next is a waste of time you can only control how you show up today and I love this idea of embracing the moment that you find yourself in all right Susan if uh, anyone who's listening is interested in knowing more about you following you reading your book where can they find you either on the internet the interwebs the social media anything
2: you have an author's Facebook page for those of your listeners who are there. Susan Burroughs author. It is my politics free zone. It is only for um, people who would like to discuss their children or perhaps their writing if they're writers. And I do have a website and it is Susan So I invite anybody who would like to reach out or have a discussion or would like more information to reach me there. And the susanburrows.com would also have an excerpt from the book. I do encourage people to read the excerpt first because uh, the book does have a lot of profanity in it because it's a representation of that time in our life. So I know that that is uh, disturbing to some people. So I do invite them to read the excerpt first before jumping in. And then they're are many places to get the book. There's obviously Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but also your local independent bookstores will be able to find that book for you.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll put those links in our show notes so that people can find you and uh, take a look at the book. Take a look at all the goodness that you're putting into this world. Susan, I'm grateful that you are willing to bring light to a very much needed topic and we're brave enough to tell the story of something that was, I'm sure, incredibly and possibly difficult, but yet maybe affords someone who's listening the opportunity to feel less alone and now affords them a resource to think differently about how they approach crisis and addiction inside of their own lives. So thank you so much, Susan, for being here. I appreciate you and I appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed this episode and how could you have not, I want to encourage you to take a picture of the device that you were listening to the episode on. I want you to tag myself and Susan. Let us know what you thought. Share it with every single human you've ever known in your entire life. And until next week, find a way to connect to the thing you can control, which is how you show up today. We will see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.